the, uh, the scripture reading for today. If you will turn with me to Hebrews 11, if you've got your Bibles, or if you can manage to reach under your seat in front of you. Uh, I'm going to read all the way to 12.3. It is a long passage, all right? But I would urge you, don't fade out. Don't let your mind wander. It really is significant. I'm going to be asking you to compare and contrast the guys you're hearing about here with something else later in the sermon. So, Hebrews 11. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen... In holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when when called to go to a place, he would later... Oops. The problem with Kindle. He would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith... He made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead, from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial 
of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than, in, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. Notice that not fear comes up again and again. Not fearing the king's anger, he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. <clears throat> By faith, <clears throat> the people of Israel passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. Pretty scary. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle, and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the grounds, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, generally, this is all about faith. We're all talking about faith. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to talk about in terms of hope. Um... And I want, to, uh, I, I want to compare and contrast this hope with other hopes that we find in the world around us. <clears throat> there's, there's something that, that uh, people say, especially Christians, that this is society, American society, is all about instant gratification. It's not true, or at least it's not completely true. Americans love planning. They love setting goals and achieving them, right? Uh, so about a month ago... I'm at the missions conference. I'm, I've yet to get over jet lag, so I'm like up at 5.30, and I'm like, oh, I need to get in shape. I go to the gym at the hotel, and they've got one of these elliptical things, and it's got a little TV built in it, 
And, uh, and it's boring to just kind of go, so I turn on the TV. The only thing interesting worth watching is the Steve Harvey show. I don't know. It's the only thing on 6 a.m. that's worth watching. Steve Harvey, if you do not know, is best known. He's this big black dude who is uh, best known as the host for Family Feud. And apparently he has his own TV show. He's got his own talk show, early morning talk show. And so I watched it. There were three segments. First segment was called A Class Act, in which uh, his team took a young woman, poor, raised in a trailer home, got no manners, got no nothing, and they kind of do a Pygmalion, Eliza Doolittle thing with her, and they dress her up nice and teach her manners and teach her to talk good. And she... uh, and, And... and they set her up with a date with a male model type guy. And, the, and they interview her and she says, you know, I've, it was really great. I've, I know how far I have to go. But when he handed that rose to me, I felt beautiful. Second was an interview with the actress C.C.H. Pounder, who is, plays a coroner in NCIS New Orleans, a black actress who got her break when she got a concussion and then she did all these memory exercises and realized I'm really good at memorizing stuff and that kind of led her into actressing. And, um, and she was you know, all about overcoming obstacles and, and achieving success. And, and, but she didn't like social media, so Steve Harvey said, I'm going to mention your Twitter account on the air. We are going to blow up your Twitter. Third segment was a wife and a husband the wife was just fed up with this husband's string of failed business ventures, and she said, with the husband sitting right there, I don't think he's got the character to see a business venture through to success. And then uh, the wife was dismissed. Steve Harvey starts dealing one-on-one with this guy and saying, and saying, what do you want to do? And, 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 he's, and he says, what you need is you need to learn how to dream smart. You need how to learn how to set goals and work smart towards those goals, and you will achieve your dreams. All right? What do all three of those things have in common? They're all about hope. They're all about a future orientation and anticipation and expectation of success. I do X, I will achieve Y. Right? Um, how is that different from what we read, the, the list of names in Hebrews 11 and 12, or in Hebrews 11 and into 12, 3. Imagine those guys were being interviewed on the Steve Harvey show. What would they have to show for it? These were people who are dying without seeing what was promised. All right, there's something else going on there. There's something different. So what we're going to do is I want to look at this passage from the perspective of hope And we're going to look at four things. Number one, how is their hope different than what we get, uh, this kind of religion of success from the Steve Harvey show and Oprah and and them? Number two, how our hope takes the long, 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 long view, even though sometimes Christians fall into this short-term type of thinking. Number three, what are the consequences of living out of this hope and living out of a false hope? How are they different in terms of their consequences? And four, some thoughts about how we can maintain our hope, how we can fix our eyes on Jesus. All right, so number one, um, this is all about hope. It's all, the, the Steve Harvey show is all about hope. 
This is the American religion. I do X, will get Y. I work out and get buff, I will get the girlfriend who's a model or at least looks like one. If I go to college and I work real hard, I will get a job that will pay me well and I will be satisfied in it and I will have financial success. If I follow these parenting rules, I will have a family that will do me proud, that I can be proud of and will, and will kind of be the good Christian family. All of these things. If I follow the rules, if I do X, I will get Y. Not so much with the Hebrews 11s guys. Uh, things ran a little differently with them, if you didn't notice, if you weren't paying attention. They had their hope in something or someone quite different. But before we want to talk about this passage, I want to dispel uh, um, some misunderstandings about it. This is often referred to as the heroes of faith or the hall of fame of faith, right? That's how we, anybody who's grown up in the church has heard that before. I would suggest that that's not the best name for this passage uh, because it makes it look like these guys are way different. Uh, we were watching Terminator with my youngest, 16 years old, uh, our Ruthie, our 16-year-old. And at the very beginning of the movie, if you've seen Terminator Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, these guys are the Arnold Schwarzeneggers of faith. Well, Arnold, Arnold makes his appearance. He comes through a time portal, and he has got nothing on. Now, shadows and camera angles keep things mostly tasteful, but there he is. And my daughter leads over to me and says, is he wearing a muscle suit? And we're like, no, honey, that's, that's him. That's Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, world-class bodybuilder. And she was like, there are people who look like that? And I think if we think about this as the heroes of faith, we look at this passage and we do the same thing. We're like, there are people with faith muscles like that? Wow. I could never be like that. I could never do that. Oh, wow. That's not what this is. These were not perfect, sinless people. This is, um, if you take a closer look, they are screw-ups like us, and worse. Um, you know, just go through, sometime go through the list and study the lives of the people mentioned there. Look, there's the woman who laughed in God's face. Oh, and there's the coward who couldn't lead an army. And there's the prostitute. And there's the murderer. Oh, and there's the other murderer and adulterer. And there's the guy who killed his daughter because he made a stupid, stupid promise. Oh, and, and there's the one who sold out his wife or was ready to sell out his wife to keep himself safe. These are not perfect people at all. This is not the, the heroes of the faith, the Hall of Fame. It is a family album. The, we are of the same lineage that starts with them and goes to Jesus and comes to us. But the author of Hebrews say that, wants to say that these people do have something commendable, something that God loves. What? All of these people had learned over the course of their lives to sink their hope into something unsinkable. They learned to see past the limits of their own lives and circumstances and ground their hope in something solid, something unmovable. That is, the steadfast love of God and his promises. 
And God loves people who trust in him that way. Psalm 147 says his delight is not in the strength of horses, nor his pleasure in the legs of man, not, not the strength of, you know, not, not the Arnold Schwarzeneggers, but the Lord takes pleasures in those who fear him, in those, whose hope, in those who hope in his steadfast love. God loves those who trust him in that way, put their trust in him despite everything, knowing that he can redeem anything. He can bring life out of death. That's why he's talking about you know, Abraham. Abraham knew that as he's ri- raising his knife over his son, the son of the promise. He's like, God can fix this. And he can. God trumps death. <clears throat> the one that jumps out at me when I'm reading this is Jacob as he's kind of leaning on his staff. You know why he's leaning on his staff? Because he's weak, because he's dying, and he knows it. It's just a really poignant picture. He, he's, he has had a rough life. He's still grieving the loss of his wife who died. And he had lost his son. He thought he had given up his son for dead. And he says in Genesis 48, you know, I'm really, really hurting from losing your mom. And I thought I'd lost you too. And not only do I get to see your face, I get to see the face of your children too. And yet, there's a poignancy. This is a man whose twilight is fading fast. You know, and he blesses the children. But he is not going to see the promise to his fathers fulfilled. Not in his lifetime. There's going to be a ton of suffering for his people and then there will be a promise. Then, then that promise will start being fulfilled. But a long time after he's buried. But it would come. And he knew it would come. That's where he had his hope placed. This kind of hope has nothing in common with the religion of success that you see on the Steve Harvey show. And, and seriously, I'm not picking on Steve Harvey, but it's everywhere around us. It's everywhere. The kind of hope that sinks its anger, its anchor into the expectation of earthly success. Hebrews 11 type hopes sees past success and failure in this life into the larger pattern of what God is doing in the long, long, long term. This kind of hope requires a certain kind of stance. If you watch Olympics and you see the judo guys, you know, they ha- kind of have this thing like that, or, or wrestling, you know, and they, or the, those huge offensive linemen, and they're kind of leaned over like that, right? You know that it's not going to be easy moving this guy off his spot. That's what Hebrews 11 has. The, the, that's what these guys had. They had that kind of settled response. Of course, it's not a perfect image because Hebrews 11 is all about motion. It's all about movement, right? These guys started in a place of safety, moved out into a place of risk because of their sure foundation of hope. Abraham doesn't know where he's going, but he's like, okay, I'm trusting you. I'm going. Um, the, but what I want to say is it's, it's a settled sort of thing. You, you, you're on your spot. You're going in this direction. You're not going to be moved. As opposed to 
the hope of so many Americans is like chasing rabbits. And you're going here and there, you're trying to get it, and you're, oh, I need to get this thing, I need to get this thing so I could be a success. So my life will be worth living. Uh, so it's not about hope versus non-hope. Everybody's got a hope of some sort or another. It's about where you sink your hope into, where you connect, where you're grounded. Is it something changeable, like earthly success, which will have you chasing it like a rabbit all your life? Or is it something like the unshakable purposes of God, who loves you so that you can settle in, so that you're hard to move? It's a choice between sure hope and false hope. So, point two, taking the long Long, long view. Um, Let me be perfectly clear. It is not as if Christians are immune to this sort of short-term chasing the rabbit sort of hope. Uh, What Steve Steve Harvey and his guests chatted about is deeply American. It is deeply human. It is a deeply human way of finding hope in this world. You work, you expect things to work out. And Christians fall prey to this when they get hung up about church attendance and numbers or about health and wealth or about career success or setbacks or producing the perfect family or whatever. Um, Heck, I I, I fall prey to this kind of hope when, this kind of false hope when I get really, really involved in doing things that I think will be helpful for the church. You know, I teach classes that I hope people will, you know, will open eyes. I, I try, I'm writing, doing writing projects that I hope will help. You know, I'm, I, we invite students in our home, and I'm like, um, that's all good stuff, but it can become a trap. It can become a false hope. It can become something that I sink my hope into, and then the trap closes. You know, because what if it doesn't seem to be working? What if I'm not having the impact I want to have? What if I'm not getting done the stuff that I think I should be getting done? Who am I then? What am I here for? I've got to get this stuff done. Don't you understand? I've got to get it done. And then I start lashing out at the people around me because I'm so frustrated inside. And I can't even see, much less love, the people God's put around me. It's only as I remember in whom I hope, whose family I am, whose I belong, who I belong to, that I can, for the joy set before me, endure the path that God set out for me. Can I be certain of things I don't see, of things that may never come to fruition in my lifetime? Can I have that wrestler's stance? Can I settle in? Uh, my hope sunk deep in God and what he's doing over the long, long term, which after all ought to trump my hope about what I'm doing in the short term. It's only as I give up hope in my agenda that I can rest in the hope anchored in the faithful love of God to screw-ups like you and me. Let me put that another way. God never never calls us to success. He calls us to be faithful to the hope which he has given us that he's opened up for us in the gospel. 
be faithful and dwell in that hope and leave success up to God. Be faithful to where he's called you, leave success to God. And what does that mean? That means the pressure's off, guys. Even though you're called to a hard spot, pressure's off. You are not, you don't have God as some foreman saying, I expect results. It's about, I want you to be here and I want you to be faithful. So it's, it's a place of rest. The author of Hebrews calls, in chapter 4, calls it a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Do you get that? I mean, it's weird. You're called to something hard, but it's a place of rest. Because you're not fixing your eyes on your performance, but you're fixing your eyes on Jesus. Do you get that? Is that... I mean, it's weird, but that's what Hebrews is saying. Um, understanding this is the only thing that is the only way to stay sane in a world where things often don't work out. Things often do not work out in Prague, Czech Republic. Like I said, it is a rocky field to till. It is a hard, it is a hard ministry field. Um, if people ask me what working in the Czech Republic is like as a as you know kind of a missionary they don't but you know if they do I'm ready uh, I'll say it's like being placed in front of the giant pyramids of Giza and being told that I am to excavate a tunnel through the thickest part of the pyramid clear to the other side and then the foreman hands me a pin and says get working and you kind of scritch you know, you scritch, 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 scritch. And, uh, and you know, I know, I, I, and you're just kind of hoping that God will bless the efforts, knowing full well that you will probably not see any results, any significant results in your lifetime. But, dude, I'm called to scritch, so I'm going to scritch as faithfully as I can, but I know it's scritching. You know, if I got hung up, if you, if you do the notches on the belt thing, that missionaries can sometimes do, you will go mad and you will leave. You won't last. Uh, I've got to take the long view because God's timeline is just different than mine. I've got to have my hope sunk into him, not into my personal success in this life. Now, if you are a right-thinking American, you will say, wow, that sounds miserable. What a way to set yourself up for failure, you bum. Uh, you know, what, what gibberish, what misery. What a way to court unhappiness and unfulfillment. I would respond, if that's what you're thinking, just in case. I would respond, maybe, just maybe, we need to rethink our commitment to our own happiness as the number one thing that life is about. It just doesn't seem like that's reflected in Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 12. Um, Look at those guys. You know, they're dying without seeing fruition. They're getting stoned and sawed in two. Not the best career move ever. Not where your typical life coach would lead you. Um, but, But that's because it's not about them. It's not about their happiness and their fulfilledness. It's about something bigger. Um, you, you wouldn't look at the Hebrews 
11 guys and say, please give me a double heap in helping of that. But that's what they were called to. Um, you wouldn't look at them and say, yes, these are well-contented, well-off, comfortable people. Um, these are people who know hardship, who know sorrow, but who also knew hope unshakable. They knew which end was up in the long view of things. They saw and they welcomed these things. And what is, what is the author of Hebrews talking about when he says they welcomed these things from afar? He's talking about Messiah. He's talking about the promises of God being fulfilled. They're welcoming Jesus from afar. What a magnificent phrase, welcoming Jesus from afar, because that's how it feels to us a lot of the time, right? When my dad was dying of cancer some, oh, was it 20 years ago? 19 years ago? He said something to me I'll, I'll never forget. He said to me, I don't think God is as concerned with my happiness as he is with my holiness. And I think he was on to something. Um, the Bible often talks about suffering, about failure, about hardship as ways that kind of bring our out-of-focus life stunningly into focus, that draw us nearer to God and uses all sorts of images to deal with it. A vine dresser pruning his vine in John 15. A jeweler purifying his metals in 1 Peter 1 and really throughout all of the prophets. Uh, a a Father disciplining his son in Hebrews 12. And bear in mind, this is a church that is suffering intense persecution. Sometimes, uh, so, so what is God doing? When God allows suffering and hardship and stuff into my life, um, what is he doing but peeling away false hope layer by layer by layer like an onion until there is nothing left but for us to hope in him, the invisible. Sometimes there's nothing as spiritually beautiful and healthy as the death of a false hope. That's really, really harsh, um, but it really does fix your eyes on Jesus and not on happiness or success in this world. In a weird way, suffering and failure gives us assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen by drawing our eyes off of what is seen. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, what's seen is temporary. What's invisible, that's the eternal stuff. That's what you've got to fix your eyes on. Now, I would be remiss. This is, this, this is sounding gloom and doom, I know. I would be remiss if I left you with the impression that God is gunning for you. You know, he's out to make you suffer. He doesn't care anything about your happiness. That, that is a theology that I developed as a young man called the Big Shoe Theology. And the Big Shoe Theology is that God is sitting up in heaven with a huge shoe held by one single shoelace. And when everything seems good and, con and you're content and stuff like that, he'll just let that sucker drop and bam! He will crush you like a bug, and your life will be shattered, and it will all be for your best, right? And so you have to say, oh, yes, God. And I was like, it's, it's, that's not that. God loves us. We're his kids. But he's going to steer us away from things that will kill us, right? 
As surely as a parent would take his toddler away from the bottle of bleach that he's kind of going, ah, I got it, you know. It's a pretty bottle. And it looks like so much fun to drink. But it will destroy that child if you let him drink it. In the same way, false hope will destroy you. God is a loving father. That's, that's what Hebrews 12 is about. He's a loving father who brings us away from the stuff that kills us. The stuff that draws us away from him. Um, the religion of success that is so pervasive in America and in the West in general will kill you. The, other sel- the self-help gurus out there will kill you if you let them. Instead, God wants to give us something so much better. He wants to give him his very self through Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus, which binds us eternally to him. You know, not like perishable stuff like silver and gold, Peter tells us, but stuff that lasts forever. Uh, You hope in that, and you'll find yourself taking the big picture. You know, your vision grows wide to take in the whole story. And that story ends with God winning, with us at his side, completely at peace, completely full of joy. That's the hope we have in God. Accept no substitutes. Now, number three, the consequences of hope and the consequences of false hope. Please do not misunderstand the thrust of this sermon. I am not saying, okay, people, whip yourselves into shape. Put your hope here rather than here because it's just the right thing to do. So man up, people of God. Pull yourself together. I'm not, that would would be like, it's not about you. It's not about your performance. It's about the gospel, right? Rather... I would like to recommend one hope as solid and freeing and, the, and reveal false hope as fleeting and enslaving. The one will give you life, the other will steal your life away. There are practical consequences of having one hope over another. So what does this look like practically in your life? What does having the right hope or the wrong hope look like and feel like day to day to day? First, let's look at the consequences of having false hope, of, have, of sinking your hope into the wrong place, some earthly success or other, whether it's career achievement or attractiveness or financial security or respectable Christian family or whatever. If you hook your wagon to that To any of those markers of earthly success, you will end up with a life dominated by worry and resentment. You will chase those rabbits and never really feel like you've securely got them. You'll never be wealthy enough. Never. You will never be attractive enough. You'll never be smart enough. You will never have your family in line enough. Never, never, never. You may achieve temporary victories, You know, the date, the promotion, the stock prices jump in your favor, the, you know, the graduation or whatever, uh, but it won't last. It never lasts. And you will find yourself hedging your bets, 
circling your wagons, withdrawing from the world, and becoming either bitter or apathetic about the world around you. Just trying to protect the little that you think you have. That strategy of self-protection will it is essentially the, the path to early curmudgeonhood. And you will rob yourself of real hope and real joy. A lot of the Christian church is there, believe me. On the other hand, if you say, forget that, to heck with that. Not that you don't care about your looks or money or your career or anything, but that is not going to be my final concern. That is not what is going to set my agenda. If you say, forget about that, I'm throwing my lot in with this guy who died and rose again. I'm going to trust and bank everything on him. Then your relationship to the world and those around you changes. You will become fearless. Like Moses. Like Noah. He didn't fear the people around him. He feared God. Moses' parents didn't fear Pharaoh. They feared God. You know, um, Abraham didn't fear fear his lack of destination, he trusted in God. All these people became fearless because they had an unshakable hope. Instead of dread, instead of meeting life with dread, you can look around you with hopeful eyes, looking for signs of what God is doing in the world. Instead of drawing in to protect you and yours, you can live out boldly, embracing others in love, in risky ways. You will develop not a bitter curmudgeonly attitude, but what I call a holy impatience, where you see things that are wrong in the world and you grieve for them and you pray about them and you work for them to be better, but you leave the results to God without bitterness. God, this is going to change on your timetable, not mine. This is absolutely freeing. A Supreme Court decision will not rock your world. You've got your hope placed somewhere else. Not even someone coming into your church and gunning down some of your loved ones will shake your hope. Months later, and I'm, I'm still blown away by what those Christians, what our brothers and sisters did in Charleston, looking their, the killer of their loved ones in the face and forgiving him in the name of Jesus. And if you noticed that act of hope, which is what it was, completely flipped the script. Dylan Roof went in there trying to start a race war, and those wounded Christians completely subverted his intention. God completely subverted his intention through them. Instead, they started a national discussion about faith, and race, and healing, and forgiveness, this is amazing stuff. All because they kept their eyes fixed on Jesus. They had that judo stance of deep hope, and they ended up flipping history. So, fourth point, final point. How do you do this? How do you keep your fo hope focused? How do you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus? How do you keep that stance, that settled hope stance? How do you keep your, your hope grounded on the right person? Well, for one, it's not a question of doing as much as of being. 
And I know, I know that sounds very cryptic and zen and all that, but here's what I mean. You can't reduce it down to a list of how-tos. It's, it's not reducible to technique. Because if I said that, then I would be shifting your eyes off of Jesus and onto your performance. If you do X, you will certainly achieve Y. Right? But it's not about you. It's not about your performance. It's about the one in whom you hope. You, you just need to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Uh, now, I am going to give you a couple of how-tos, a couple of habits of the heart and of practice, and they are going to seem to some of you to be childishly simple because it's not about some secret te- technique, no ancient Chinese secret. It, it's just about being a Christian Staying sane, realigning your hope with, your vision with reality. Uh, and what is reality? That God's in charge, Jesus has won, and the Spirit dwells in you and will see you through. So, here are four simple points of application. Number one, pray to God for your eyes. Ask God a lot to give you the perspective where you need it. We all need to have the curtain drawn back just a bit and to give us the big picture, to keep your eyes focused on Jesus and not just on our own little lives. Everything that's happening is bigger than you. Pray for good eyes that fix on Jesus. Number two, read your Bible. Um, That helps open up your eyes too. You want to see how the overall story moves and who's really moving the story. When life was tough, that's what David did in Psalm 77. Psalm 77 is a lament. And David spends the whole first half of the lament going, Ah, life is terrible. Ah, this is awful, awful, awful. God, where are you? What's going on? Ah! That's the first half of the psalm. And then it hinges in verses 10 through 13 he says this, he kind of brings his lament to us, uh, and it changes and it shifts into hope. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. That is, you got it right. What God is great like our God? How do you say that in the middle of a lament? You remember the deeds of God. You you read your Bibles. So regular helpings of the Bible help remind you about the big story, who you hope in, whose story you're in. Number three, community, relationship. As I said before, this is not about you. This is not about the individual. You were never meant to do this on your own. The author of Hebrews tells us of this. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, right? All those guys, all of those screw-ups who who had their hope fixed on Jesus are around you, cheering you. This is a communal thing, but you need somebody on the ground now. A cloud's great, the cloud is great, but you need somebody on the ground now. Um... And, that, and the author of Hebrews says that in chapter 13. Don't stop meeting together as long as it is today. Right? Keep meeting together. Um, a big calling of the church is to keep each other sane. Keep each other's eyes not fixed on the prize, but on the prize winner. 
And this, of course, happens here in corporate worship. This is, this is sort of a large-scale communal, communal sanity check, right? Um, but it should be happening outside corporate worship as well. If you are not in a relationship with another Christian besides your family, with whom you can be honest about your struggles and the ways that false hopes keep popping up and have to keep be putting down, uh, you need that. You know, somebody you can go out to coffee with, somebody you can go out to a beer with and say, this is what's going on in my life. You need this. Around six years ago, one of the elders in our Czech church, he wasn't an elder then, but he, he came to me and said, he's another American guy. He said, look, you're a missionary I'm a missionary. I think we need to meet together just to keep each other sane. And, and so every other week, we get together for coffee and, uh, and, and share about our struggles on this really tough field. We have nothing in common. I'm a pop culture nerd. He's a jock. You know, uh, our kids are in college or, you know, te- later teens, and two of them are in college. His are in elementary school and middle school. I'm East Coast. He's Midwest. Doesn't matter. All of that doesn't matter. We're there to keep each other sane. We love each other. We talk to each other. We encourage each other. We challenge each other. You need that. If you don't have that, get it. Community. Number four, finally, uh, step out in love like Jesus did. You want to fix your eyes on Jesus? Then try loving like he did. That is, love the people that you don't think can be loved. Love the outcasts. Love the dirty. Whoever, just think about who's dirty in my list. Who would I never think of approaching? Who would I never love? Who would be risky? Because that's what Hebrews 11 is, is about. Place of safety, God says, move out. Abraham moves out into a place of risk. Moses moves out of the comfortableness of, of Pharaoh's household into a place of risk. That's what we're called to do. If you, and you can only do that if you've got your hope fixed on Jesus. Don't be misled and say, oh, but I can't love those people because they'll stain me. Have your hope a little deeper than that in the purifying power of the blood of Christ that can protect your soul and, and be where Christ was, loving the dirty people. In closing, let me conclude. Uh, let me warn you off of, you know, oh, those people in Hebrews 11, so remarkable. I could never do something like that. I, I think they are remarkable, those folks in Hebrews 11, but they're family. They're, they're your family. And what makes them remarkable is not them, not their achievements, but the character and orientation of their hope. This hope is not really about us, It's about the one in whom we hope, on whom we fixed our eyes, beyond ourselves and our circumstances. He's worth sinking your hope into. Let's pray. Dearest Father, thank you for the sure hope that we have in Christ. Thank you that we can welcome him even when he seems far away. Please, Father, uh, give us eyes that see through the little hopes that you, that Um, mollify so many of the people around us so often mollify us help us to see past them 
into the long, long, big picture that you give us. Help us with that, God. Because um, And for those of us in this room who are lonely, who don't have anybody, please give us friendships, give us relationships, help keep us sane. We need that. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to sing... Uh,